The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. God, we pray that um, your word would open up our heart to an understanding of your truth and your, your heart toward us. We pray that the um, misinformed ways that we have cast you would be dispelled by your word of truth, by you testifying directly of yourself, of letting us know what is your heart toward us. And may that truth draw us to you, um, understanding how much you love us and care for us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned at the start of the series three weeks ago um, that this Old Testament Among the Old Testament prophetic books, Jeremiah is unusual uh, in that we're given so much detail, uh, not only about his writings, but also about his life, especially all of the consequences that he suffers as a result of the messages that God tells him to proclaim. And so throughout the series in this book of Jeremiah, we're going to be jumping back and forth between his life and his writings or his his, uh, oracles, his, his prophecies. And so in the first two messages, we focused on his life. We looked at how God had called him uh, to be a prophet even before he was born. And as a youth, uh, he actually let him know that he was called in this way. And last week, we saw how overwhelmed Jeremiah felt by the weight of what God was asking him to do. And as I said in last week's message, whether you're doing frontier mission work in the other side of the globe or whether you're just trying to raise your children in a godly way here in America, um, the things that God calls us to do are not only difficult, but they're impossible when we attempt them by our own strength. But what we saw in last week's message was that by God's enablement, all things are possible. That when we take our eyes off of ourselves, our limitations, our weaknesses, and look to the sufficiency of God, then We can embrace God's calling in our life without fear, without worry. We saw that in verses 18 to 19 of Jeremiah 1 when he said, And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls. Against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. I'm going to ask you as one man to stand against an entire wicked nation. But you don't have to feel overwhelmed because I'm going to be with you. Well, in today's message, I want to shift gears a bit, and we're going to now take a look at Jeremiah's earliest prophecies, the messages that he gave to Judah. And before I do that, I want to fill in a bit of detail by giving you a brief historical background to what was going on. Josiah was king over Judah when Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry. In fact, Josiah and Jeremiah were probably roughly about the same age with each other. As you may, some of you may know, Josiah was only eight years old when he took the throne. He was a boy king. And although he must have looked ridiculous there being crowned, it became very clear very soon that he was going to be a special king. 
12 years into his reign at the age of 20, Josiah initiated the most sweeping religious reforms in Israel's history. He tore down the places of idolatry and turned people's hearts back to God. Five years into this reform, he decided to repair the broken down temple of God. And while they were cleaning out the temple, basically doing a massive spring cleaning on it, they discovered this book of the law. And that was basically the first five books of our modern Bible. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so uh, you get a sense of how bad things were in Israel when the Bible is buried in a forgotten corner of the temple for years and no one even knows what it is when they uncover it. And so Josiah asked for the book to be read to him. And it's interesting, when the words are read to him, his reaction is to tear his robes. I think what was happening in Josiah's heart was that the utter wickedness and depravity of the Israelites was cast in a completely whole new light in light of these holy commandments that he was reading in the Bible. And he began to realize how far Israel had fallen from what God desired of his people. God spoke to Josiah through this prophetess named Huldah in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27, when she spoke to the king and said, Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And so Josiah gathers all of the Israelites together and he has the law read to them as well. And this, fueled by the power of God's word, brings about an even greater religious reform than what had gone the previous 12 years. And they destroy all of the places of idol worship. And they even reinstitute the Passover celebration, which had been abandoned since the days of King Solomon for many years. Um, now, what we're told is this. Jeremiah's ministry began in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. That means that Josiah began prophesying one year into this reform. Okay? So, in other words, what we can say is this. In many ways, Jeremiah became a mouthpiece for the reform that God was bringing about through King Josiah. And so, that's sort of the way you have to understand many of the messages that are coming out of Jeremiah's mouth is that he was speaking during this time of Josiah's reform. Now, Josiah would actually die well before Jeremiah finished his prophetic ministry, but these passages we're looking at in this early part of the series all are in this historical context. Now, we're going to look at chapter 2 today. The entire chapter is like several pages long, and so I would spend half my sermon reading the text, so instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually highlight certain key passages in it that I think capture the entire theme of chapter 2, okay? But I would actually encourage you to read the whole chapter on your own at some time when you go home today. Um, when you read these Old Testament prophecies, it's, I think what usually comes to most of our minds is fire and brimstone, right? It just sounds like an angry God venting, uh, throwing a hissy fit and yelling at his people and threatening them, condemning them, judging them. 
And everything is about punishment and all of that. And truth is, when you read the book of Jeremiah, it can actually feel that way, that it reinforces that stereotype of Old Testament prophecy. But as we're going to see, looking a little more deeply beneath the surface, it's not all about fire and brimstone and condemnation. The message that God spoke through his prophets is actually a lot more nuanced and deeper than just yelling at people because they're not doing what he wants them to do. Jeremiah chapter 2 is basically structured like a legal case between a jilted husband and his unfaithful wife. The marriage has been a long and rocky one. Many wounds have been sustained over the course of this relationship, and they've cut very deeply. And basically, each side is lawyered up. And the, accusation are, the accusations are fly, flying in both directions. You see, Israel has no shortage of complaints and responses to what God has to say. They're not taking this lying down. They, they show, in fact, open defiance against God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, it says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Even in the face of being caught in blatant sin, the Israelites flatly deny and lie to God's face that they have done anything wrong. In verse 23, it says, How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. Basically, they look right at God and say, What? We haven't done anything. We're fine. Having run out of excuses, they have the nerve to claim that they also are helpless victims in all of this. That they couldn't resist these urges that consumed them. And so they had no power to resist the temptations they faced. They were victims. That's what it says in verse 25. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. You see, God's people are clearly not in a repentant mood here. Quite the opposite. They are stubbornly defiant and even hostile toward God. And if this was any normal court hearing, the husband should now attack his wife, laying out the overwhelming evidence against her without mercy. But it's interesting that God doesn't begin his case against this people with this litany of accusations. But with this unexpected and, in truth, a little unsettling tenderness. He begins his case like this. He starts by telling his people how fondly he remembers the love they shared at the start of their relationship. That's how God begins his case. He says, do you remember what it was like <laughs> when we first got married? Can we just hit the pause button and stop the yelling and shouting and accusations? And can we just rewind the tape and recollect what the early years of our marriage were like? In verses 1 and 2, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, 
in a land not sown. God is describing what we would today call a honeymoon, right? I don't think they had honeymoons back then. But that's in essence what he's describing here. God is saying to Israel, I remember when it was just you and me all alone. I had you to myself. And we only had eyes for each other. You were so faithful to me back then. You would follow me anywhere. We had nothing in that desert. But it didn't matter because we had each other. Verse 3, God goes on. He says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. In other words, what God was saying to Israel was, you were once holy. You were once clean. You were once set apart for me. You were reserved for no other love but for my love. And then he says this, and I was your jealous husband. I punished without mercy anyone who would dare lay a hand on my bride. I was a faithful husband to you. I want to ask you this question. Those of you who are married in this room, when did you realize that the honeymoon was over? It's funny, uh, Philip Riken says, I knew my honeymoon was over when the non-stick pans that we got at our wedding became sticky. <laughs> um, I don't know, did you last three months? Six months? A year? <laughs> I think some of you may not have even made it out of your honeymoon before you realized the honeymoon was over, right? We were at each other's throats before we left the hotel, you know? Yeah, that's what some of you are thinking. Um, I think for my marriage, it might have happened the day I criticized Betty's cooking. You know? <laughs> and she didn't take it very well. And it was a very difficult night. You know? <laughs> um, and as the marriage continues, it's kind of scary how quickly the relationship can deteriorate, isn't it? As you begin to record a growing list of wrongs that your spouse has done against you. And every act of service is offered grudgingly to your spouse and becomes, in fact, a bargaining chip for future negotiations, right? And every request that our spouse makes of us feels like a selfish and unreasonable demand on our time and our energy, an intrusion into our freedom and our happiness. This is what marriage looks like when love is lost. And this is what our relationship with God looks like when it gets reduced to nothing more than loveless religion. Why is God such a killjoy? Why does he make so many demands on me? Why doesn't God just leave me alone and let me do whatever I want? And that's what the Israelites were complaining to God. What a burden you put on us. And so God reframes everything to the Israelites around this issue of love. And he says, what happened to your first love when you actually wanted to be with me and follow me? 
It's amazing, isn't it, how love changes the perspective on the sacrifices that we're asked to make in a relationship, isn't it? Um, Some of you know that Betty and I were high school sweethearts, and we had dated for over 10 years before we got married. Um, But we are one year apart in grade, and so I graduated from high school before she did, and I went off to Champaign-Urbana for University of Illinois to start my undergraduate education while she was a senior in high school. So I was a freshman at U of I, and Betty was still a senior in high school. This is actually, I think, from that year. And uh, that was a difficult year. That was a really difficult year. I lived in a, in a dorm with two other guys and a triplet. And uh, we had no privacy in that dorm room, so we would go into our closet and shut the door and sit in our laundry hamper, and I would just talk to her for hours every day. And every once in a while, in that little mousy voice she has, <laughs> she would say, Steve, I miss you. I'm tired of just talking on the phone. I want to see you. <laughs> and more often than I would care to admit, that would be enough for me to get into my car and drive all the way up to Chicago. And the crazy thing was, like, I would only spend typically like 30 minutes with her because I had class the next day. I had homework to do, you know? So I would drive up for three hours, see her for 30 minutes, and then drive back to Champaign. I think our parents thought I was crazy. They were like, aren't you supposed to be in college, you know? <laughs> like seeing her like that. They go, I just wanted to see your daughter, you know? Um, here was the thing was I was so head over heels in love with her that the drive didn't even matter you know that six hours was not wasted it was a very reasonable price to pay to spend 30 minutes with her you know here's the thing we think that being faithful to God is about gritting our teeth and trying harder to follow God's commands. But the way God frames it is, it's actually about guarding our hearts against all the other loves that pull us away from him. That's the way God sees it. It's always about love. It's always about love. What's crazy is that the Israelites' honeymoon with God wasn't in some tropical beach paradise. It was in the brutal and desolate Sinai Desert. Nobody builds a honeymoon resort in the desert, right? Did any of you go to a desert for your honeymoon? I doubt it. Verse 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. In the barrenness and emptiness of that desert, the Israelites had nothing and had to totally depend on God for everything. And out of that total dependency and trust in God, they experienced God's love for them as he provided for everything that they needed in their life. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 to 4, Moses says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your father know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. God said, I brought you into the desert to show you that all you needed in your life was me. And just like God did with the Israelites, sometimes God needs to bring us to that place of wilderness in our lives as well. You see, when you read it in the Bible, it sounds so romantic. Ah, that was, must have been such a beautiful time. Until God brings you to the wilderness and you realize how brutal and scary that wilderness is. When things that you think you need in your life are stripped away from you. And you're left with what feels like nothing. And this is not an easy teaching. But in his love, God will take things away from us that we think we cannot live without to teach us that he is all we need. As Tim Keller says, as many have learned and later taught, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I want to say this. The thought of God taking things away from us and forcing us into the wilderness seems to reinforce our worst fears about God, right? Yeah, that is God, isn't that? Cruel and sadistic, you know? Jealous and doesn't even care about us. That would be true if the things that God took away from us We're better than having God, wouldn't it? But that's not true. God offers a completely different perspective on the matter. In verses 11 to 13 of Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out of cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God makes this powerful contrast between himself and all of the other things that the Israelites fell in love with. And he represents himself as this beautiful fountain gushing with clean, fresh water, potable water, life-giving water. And then he points that his people have rejected these fresh streams of living water for the stagnant water collected in a cistern. Now, in those days, a cistern was basically just a hole in the ground, and you have some collection off of a roof or whatever and some piping, and you just drain it into that hole in the ground. An author who is familiar with these ancient cisterns Describe the water that collected in these cisterns in this way. He says, when you look at this water, it's always kind of frothy and cloudy, okay? And it's full of debris. 
and it tastes like dirt, and it smells like a barn. And often, at the bottom of this well, it's filled with worms that kind of get through the wall and then just plop. You know how worms are, right, when they kind of burrow into the ground. He says, that's the water in a cistern. And what God is saying is, who in their right mind (laughs) rejects streams of this fresh water and chooses this murky, stagnant water in a cistern? And on top of that, he says, your cisterns are even cracked, so they don't even work. All the water just seeps out into the ground. Verses 26 to 28, God says, As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. God is pointing out to them, You have put your hope in these worthless idols that you created with your own hands. And in your moment of help, you cry to them and they can do nothing for you. They only leave you abandoned and disappointed, broken cisterns. It's interesting that in this accusation, there's this humorous jab that God actually takes at the Israelites that most of us miss because in the pagan religions that the Israelites followed after in those days, wooden idols were usually used for female goddesses. Okay, Wood represents females. But the Israelites say to the wooden goddess, you are my father. And then stone idols were usually representing male gods. But these Israelites say to the stone idols, you gave me birth. (laughs) In other words, God is making fun of them. You've adopted so many gods, you can't even keep their gender straight. So you're telling the female goddesses, you are my father, and the male gods, you gave me birth. He's saying, because you have so many gods, you don't even know who's who anymore. Now, here's the thing. If the choice were as obvious as picking a stream of fresh water or the muddy water of a hole in the ground, why would anyone ever chase after foreign gods? Why would we ever be tempted by these idols, these counterfeit gods? Well, I think the answer is because a relationship centered on love is costly. And these gods invented by man cost us nothing. Adam Welch writes, But the grace which gave much asked much. It demanded self-surrender. And without self-surrender on the part of those who received it, grace became an empty word. No other nation changed its God, non-entity though that was. The reason for the constancy was that it all meant so little. There was no cause to forsake such gods because it involved so little to follow them. Israel forsook Yahweh because the relation to him was full of ethical content. The Jewish faith had this iron core in it. The iron core was that Israel could only have Yahweh on his own terms. 
Worship of Yahweh laid a curb on men. It had a yoke and bonds. The bonds were those of love. But love's bonds are the most enduring and the most exacting. In other words, when you create a God of your own making and your own liking and your own preference, then it's great. Then your religion is whatever you feel like you want to do, right? And in truth, that was the religion in those days was you just sleep with temple prostitutes. Who wouldn't want a religion like that that sanctions immorality like that? But God's demands are real because God is real. And he says, what this relationship is about is love. And love costs something. Anybody who is married here understands that, right? And you don't have to be married to understand that. Any relationship that you try to pursue that is of any worth in your life costs you something. The consequence of Israelites forsaking God were enormous. In verse 5, God says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? By turning their backs on God and going after worthless idols, they were basically throwing their own worth away. Verse 21 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? What a striking contrast God makes. Israel, you were once a choice vine planted by me to bear fruit, to live for my purposes. But now you've become a weed, a wild vine, growing indiscriminately without purpose or direction in your life. Who or what we worship determines who we become, right? And so God says, You've chased after worthless things, and as a result, you yourself have become worthless. That's one of the most devastating problems with idolatry, is that it, continu- it, it, it totally derails us from the purposes that God has for our life when we live for these temptations and sins. Verse 22 says, Though you wash yourself with lie and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Saying, there is a stain on you that you can't wash away with soap. This isn't a simple fix here. Your problem is of a depth that you cannot resolve by your own efforts. You cannot fix the stain. But the amazing promise of God is that he offers us the opportunity for a clean slate to have an entirely new beginning no matter what we've done in the past. And we find the ultimate answer to that forgiveness through Jesus Christ who took our stain on himself on the cross. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the promise of God is whatever your track record, whatever wrong that you've done in your life, it can all be wiped clean. You can all have a fresh start because Christ took your guilt on himself. The message of Jeremiah is the message of the entire Bible. We don't come to God because he waves a threatening fist at us and says, you better get your life in order. You better fix your act, clean up your act. 
the solution to every temptation that we face against God is to love God more than anything else in this world. That love is the only thing that will draw us ultimately to God. You know, I shared about how in our earlier days, Betty and I, like, I would drive up to Chicago from Champaign just to see her for half an hour. Um, and I did that regularly that year we were separated. But here's the funny thing was um, just two nights ago, Friday night, uh, Betty came home from work, and I was down in my basement on my computer. And she looked so excited. And she was like, my week is done. And then she was like, uh, can we go out? And she wanted to go on a little date, her and I. And the thing was, I had evening appointments every night for like the last two weeks, you know? And I was exhausted. So the thought of going out again was just not pleasant to me. So I said, I don't want to go out tonight. And I saw the look on her face. <laughs> she just looked so, like, sad as she walked away. I would drive three hours to see her for 30 minutes. <laughs> Now I don't even want to go to TGI Fridays, you know, to get some appetizers, you know. Ten-minute drive. And here's the thing was, even that saddened look on her face got me kind of angry. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, it's all about you, isn't it, right? <laughs> like, do you know what week I had? And you're making me feel guilty because I don't want to go out tonight? Tonight is my night. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. And then I was preparing this message, you know. <laughs> and I just thought about it that whole night. I thought, this is, <laughs> this is how much I've changed toward my wife. This is how I'm treating her now. And so I just, the whole night, I mean, it was just, this was, I was wrapped with guilt, you know. And so the next morning when she woke up, I was like, Let's go out for breakfast. So I took her out for breakfast the next morning, and we, we had a nice breakfast together. But that's, that's the scary thing, isn't it? Is when you take love out of the equation, it's amazing how embittered and angry and frustrated we get at the demands placed on us. But when love is there, everything's okay, isn't it? Tim Keller says this. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God, who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross, is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. That is the God that we worship. And that's why he says, why would you trade what I offer you for these cheap substitutes that cannot hold water and can never satisfy? Hundreds of years after Jeremiah, a man would walk the earth who was the son of God, and his name was Jesus. And one day, while traveling through Samaria, he encountered a woman who had basically defined her entire worth in her life by the men who would love her or at least claimed that they loved her. And so chasing after this counterfeit love, she drifted from one broken marriage to another until she had gone through five husbands. 
and was now living with a guy that wasn't her husband, who had yet to propose to her. And God looks at the brokenness of this woman's life, and he says to her in John 4, verse 10 and then verse 13 to 14, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later on in the book of Jeremiah itself, God would say this to his people in Jeremiah 31, verse 2 to 3. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with with unfailing kindness. Let's pray.